The stories in this book have been told and retold, cherished and revered by literally billions of people over thousands of years. People have devoted their entire lives to studying this book. There are hundreds of thousands of commentaries on it. And many people believe that this book had to have been written by God. The Torah, what's so special about it? Why is it so mesmerizing? And how has it managed to capture the human imagination for millennia? I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at Ikar in Los Angeles, and together we're going to study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. People have been talking about this book for so long, reading this book for so long. There are thousands and thousands of commentaries on the Torah carefully scrutinizing every word. So how can there possibly be anything left to say? Well, this week, I want to talk about an idea we have in the world of Jewish study. The idea of a chiddush. A chiddush, or a chidush, is sometimes translated as an insight. But the word literally means something new. Or really, even more literally, the making of something new. So a chiddush is a novel insight into the Torah making a new observation, offering a new interpretation, something no one has ever said before. And that's a big deal. It's almost too audacious a concept in this discourse. I mean, how dare you suggest that you see something here that centuries of great scholars have never noticed? Who do you think you are? And yet, the concept of Chiddush is very much a part of this discourse. At least since one of the greatest medieval commentaries in the Talmud was called Chidushe HaRamban, the insights or the new observations of the Ramban. Because the Ramban presumably felt like he had a bunch of new things to say about the text, things that had never been said before. So that's what a Chidush is. But I, I want to also talk about what it feels like to come up with a Chidush and how that feeling is also part of the experience of reading this book. And the short answer is that it feels exhilarating. To stare at words that have been read billions of times, words that maybe you yourself have read hundreds of times before, and to suddenly see something you've never seen before. I imagine it's something like solving a famous math problem or discovering a new element. Eureka, I found it. But the first move, when you have this feeling, is to go look it up and to see if someone else has said it before. And usually, if you look hard enough, you'll inevitably find that someone has said it before. And in the world of Torah study, that's actually considered a good thing. I often feel like in the academic world, the goal is to say something new and original. But in yeshiva, when we would raise our hands and offer an interpretation of the material, if we were lucky, we would hear in response, oh, very good, Rashi says like that. And it was a badge of honor to think that you had come up with an idea that the great medieval commentary Rashi had also thought of. Baruch Shekivanti, you might say, how blessed I am that my mind went where our sages' minds did. But sometimes, every once in a great long while, you may see something in the Torah, something occurs to you, and you go and look it up, and you don't see it anywhere. No one else seems to have said it. Could it be, you wonder, that this is a chiddush? 
did I come up with a chiddish? Because it does happen. It doesn't happen every day, but it does happen. New insights, new readings come up all the time. There are people all over the world, after all, reading this book every week, still carefully analyzing this text, still offering their interpretations. And every once in a while, you hear one and you just think, wow, that's good. How did they see that? And it isn't just the fact that it's a new idea. The real magic happens when you hear a new interpretation, and not only do you think, that's never occurred to me, but almost immediately after, you also think, that sounds true. That's a good read. That, that's right. And then your understanding of the narrative of the Torah, this story so familiar to you, changes right before your eyes. Let me give you an example of one of the great chidushim, that's the plural, one of the, the great Torah chidushim I've ever heard come out in my lifetime. And the question it attempts to solve is this. During all those years in Egypt, why did Joseph never try to contact his father Jacob? It's strange. Joseph was seized and sold into slavery by his brothers, who then deceived his father into thinking he was dead. So we can understand very well why Joseph would resent his brothers and never speak to them again. But he and his father were close. In fact, he was his father's favorite son. So why wouldn't he eventually reach out to his father and at least let him know he was alive? At first, of course, he's a slave, and, and then he ends up in prison. So we, there we can assume he had no power to get a message out of Egypt. But then he's taken out of prison by Pharaoh and elevated to second in command of all of Egypt. He controlled all the country's resources and was effectively the most powerful man in the region. Surely he had the power to send a message to his father and say, hey, I'm alive and actually I'm thriving. If for no other reason, at least to alleviate his father from the deep grief of mourning for his beloved son. But no, for over two decades, he sends not a word back home. How could he be so cruel? leaving his father in agony like this. The question has been raised many times by the classical commentators, and mostly their answers have been something like, oh, he must have had some grand plan. He could see the future, and he was secretly orchestrating a great reunion and playing out all the factors like a mastermind. Okay, but still, two decades of letting his father suffer, thinking he had died? That's just heartless. But wait... Did Joseph actually know that his father thought he had died? So here comes the Chiddush from one of the great Tanakh teachers in Israel and one of the founders of Yeshivat Haaretzion, Rav Yoel Bin Nun. He writes an article uh, where he points out that not only did Joseph know nothing of his brothers deceiving his father into thinking he had died, but in fact that it was his father who had sent him to go check on his brothers that fateful day. And so when he gets there and his brothers immediately grab him and throw him into a pit, Joseph must have assumed that his father set him up, that they were all in on it, his whole family conspiring to get rid of him. So no wonder he never wrote back home. As far as he was concerned, he had no home. His whole family had disowned him in the most violent, hateful way. Now, that is an incredible chiddush. It's such a good read of the story, 
and it answers a long-standing question so perfectly with an answer no one else had thought of before. When I heard Reviol Ben Nun's interpretation for the first time, I was in awe. Wow, I thought, what an amazing accomplishment to give an entirely new understanding of the Joseph story by pointing out some simple facts that have been right there in the text all this time. What a contribution to the field. Well, I'm giving you this whole explanation of the phenomenon of Chiddush in Torah study because, and you, you may have guessed I was heading here, because today I'd like to try to offer a Chiddush of my own. Now, this one is not nearly as major a narrative shift as Reviol Bin Nun's, but it is a Chiddush, nonetheless, something that I don't think anyone else has said. And actually, in a way, it, it builds directly on the Chiddush that we've been talking about so far. So this week's Parsha is Vayigash, Vayigash, which means, and he approached. It's Judah who's doing the approaching, and it's Joseph he approaches. Joseph, as we said, is now in charge of all of Egypt's resources. And when his brothers come down to seek food during a famine, we're told that he recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. It's been over two decades, after all. He was just a teenager when they last saw him. And he must look very different now. And on top of that, he's dressed as an Egyptian official. And above all, it's just so unlikely that Joseph, their brother, would be this Egyptian official that it must not even have been a fact that their minds could register. So Joseph takes advantage of this confusion and begins playing an elaborate series of mind games with his brothers, sending them back and forth to Canaan, and finally having them bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, down to Egypt to prove their story. And then we ended last week's reading on a great cliffhanger as Joseph announces he's taking Benjamin captive and sending the rest of them home, which is the thing they all feared the most. They're doomed. All hope is lost. So then Judah approaches and he launches into a remarkable speech, some combination of begging and challenging Joseph that is so effective so pitch perfect that when he finally ends by offering himself as a replacement hostage for Benjamin, the next thing we read is, Joseph could not control himself in front of his attendants, and he cried, get everyone out of here. And he started sobbing so loudly that all of Egypt could hear. Then, overcome with emotion, Joseph reveals his identity with the famous words, Ani Yosef. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? The rest of the plot unfolds very quickly. Joseph proceeds to release Benjamin, appears to immediately forgive all of his brothers, and invites them to come down and live on the best land in Egypt. All's well that ends well, it seems. But then we're left wondering, first of all, what was it that Judah said that was so very penetrating? But also, how did he know exactly what to say? Well, Judah says a lot of things, but one of the things Judah says brings us back to the question that Reviol Ben Nun was asking. Why didn't Joseph ever contact his father? And his answer, remember, was that Joseph assumed his father was in on the conspiracy to send him away. But Judah says to Joseph the following, My father, meaning Jacob, my father said to us, as you know, my wife bore me two sons. 
but one is gone from me. And I said, alas, he was torn apart by a beast, and I have not seen him since. If you take this son from me too, and he meets with disaster, you will send my white head down into the ground. And that's all true. We know that Jacob has said those things. We know that Jacob mourned Joseph terribly. But Joseph didn't know it. And hearing it must have hit him like a ton of bricks. Because if Rav Yol ben Nun is right, then this would be the first time he realizes that his father hadn't sent him off to die, but actually has been grieving him now for all this time. Just imagine the shock he must have felt. Just imagine the overwhelming emotion that would have suddenly floored him. It's no wonder he suddenly breaks down. Judah's approach is perfect. It's almost too perfect. Which brings us back to our second question. How did Judah do it? How did he happen to give this brilliantly executed speech on the spot to the man he thought was the leader of Egypt, a speech which seems custom designed to burrow its way into Joseph's heart? But I want to suggest that the answer has been right in front of us all along. Remember our opening word, vayigash, and he approached. And remember also that in last week's partial we read, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. But how could they have failed to recognize Joseph? Lots of answers are given by the commentators. He had a beard, he had aged significantly, he wore Egyptian clothes. Maybe, like we said before, just the context would have made it so shocking for Joseph to be the one in this position. So there they are, standing in front of this daunting figure and not realizing it's their own long-lost brother. But now, as Judah approaches to make his case, he gets close and he recognizes Joseph. It's that simple. In an instant, as Judah takes a step forward, it clicks. He suddenly realizes he's talking to Joseph. Now, his brothers don't know that he knows. They've all been standing at a distance in the royal court. But Judah has just gotten close enough so that when he looks up, he finally sees the face of his brother. And so, with everything riding on him in this moment, surrounded by Joseph's attendants who know him by his Egyptian name, Judah makes a decision to play along and carefully craft his speech to work its way into Joseph's psyche drawn from the traumatic story Judah knows all too well. It's impressive. In fact, it's far more impressive than we thought, because it's no coincidence. Now, as far as I know, this is a chiddish. This is a unique interpretation. So let me try to offer some proof. First of all, when Joseph does reveal himself to the rest of his brothers, they're stunned and they stand there in disbelief. So he tells them, Gishuna alai, approach me, vayigashu, and they approached him. This is the same verb we began with, now in the plural, vayigashu. And when they're close enough to recognize him, he repeats, I am your brother Joseph. As if to say, now you're close enough. You can see it's true. 
And let me just offer one more proof text, kind of a precursor. This verb, which gets such attention in our Parsha, because it's not an extremely common one, has already been used in the Torah as an indicator of recognition. Earlier in Genesis, we find Jacob trying to fool his nearly blind father Isaac into thinking he's Esau, and Isaac is unsure. So Isaac says to Jacob, Gishana, approach me so that I can feel you to see if you are my son Esau or not. And Jacob approached his father Isaac, Vayigash Yaakov el Yitzchak Aviv. There's the same verb in the exact same form from which our Parsha gets its name, Vayigash. Now, these scenes are different in one obvious way. In the earlier case, the approach is taken so that the blind Isaac can feel Jacob, whereas here Judah approaches close enough to see Joseph. But the literary connection between approaching and recognition has been established, and that connection resonates here in the most famous use of the verb in our story. So as we look back, we find that the key to understanding the power and purpose of Judah's speech was given to us right at the start of our Parsha, hiding there in plain sight in its very first word. Like Joseph's brothers, we just didn't recognize it at first. Like Judah himself, we had to look a little closer. So that's my Kiddush. What do you think? Do, do you buy it? You don't have to. All interpretations are up for debate. A Kiddush is not the discovery of some indisputable truth about the text. It's a discovery of an entirely new way of looking at the text. But what I find remarkable is that this text is written in such a way that thousands of years later, people are still poring over it and, every so often, able to see connections that no one else has spotted before. How is that possible? Wouldn't it all have been said by now? It must be that something about the way the Torah is written invites chidush, invites constant renewal and rediscovery. And we are the element that produces this renewal. It is our engagement with the text that keeps it alive and evolving. It is our fascination with the Torah, our tireless search for new answers to ancient questions that keeps the revelation going. Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom. And our theme song is Pitchuli by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ecar.org and donate or Venmo us at ecarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot and see you next week.